All right, Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1 again, read through verse 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who, we, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're going to do a part two sermon this morning. I confess to Kyle and to Bobby as we were praying before the service this morning that when I told you that, we'd be, that I'd be preaching through Mark's gospel, I said I chose it because of the pace that it moves. And having gone through... Romans for four years. I thought we should move through a book a little bit more quickly, and yet here we are, week number two on Mark's prologue, which isn't even the full length of the prologue. Uh, Really, the the prologue probably goes through verse 13, maybe through verse 15, and here we are just now getting through verse 8, and I'm going to warn you that next week will be part three of the prologue. And the reason why I'm doing that, if I can make a defense of why I preach the way that I'm preaching right now, is because there are big concepts related in the prologue that we need to understand as we get into the the narrative structure. Once we get into the narrative structure of this gospel, it's going to move quickly, and you can pray for me. I believe that I'm going to move quickly with it then. But at the outset, I want us to grab, grab hold of some very important defining features of what the gospel writer is, is teaching. And to, I think, a first century person, they would gather these things without having uh, to be explained so thoroughly. And also what has happened uh, through 2,000 years of church history is there has been a lot of opportunity for Satan to come and influence the truth with lies. Not influence the truth, but to mix among the truth lies. And so we have misunderstandings of what the gospel means. That's what I intended last week. That we would understand when, when he begins this gospel and he says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We need to understand what gospel means. It doesn't merely mean what that Greek word, evangelios, means good news, a declaration of good news. There's content to it. As I said last week, we don't go to our, our neighbors in sin and unbelief and say, oh, believe good news and have no content for what's good, right? There's a content, and we looked at that content last week in the Christology that he presents to us right there in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how much richness there is in all of those terms regarding even the name of Jesus, the term Christ, 
this designation as the Son of God and then also as it related to the messenger coming to prepare the way for Yahweh, we looked at that and how profound the gospel is because it concerns a person that is absolutely unique in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he would do as, as, the, as, as Mark is opening up this gospel account and what that means for those who hear this proclamation of a good news is that this is a great one who has come to us. The greatest of all has come to us. And salvation is had by those who receive him, who believe on his name. And this morning, I also want to slow down when we consider the messenger. Really, this was point two from last week's sermon that we never really got into. And we'll move through it this morning, God willing, as he gives us uh, the path to do so. Secondly, in regards to this prologue this morning, we're going to see the one who prepared the way, the messenger. We saw the way was to be prepared. The way was that John, or the messenger, this promised one, would lead the way of the Lord. He would prepare the way of the Lord. In verses 2 and 3, the way is described as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And remember last week I said that really concerns three prophecies. The first found in Exodus 23.20. The second found, well, the second in order of importance, I think, as he's relating it to us is Malachi 3, verse 1, and then Isaiah 43-5. And that's who's referencing Isaiah. And as I said last week, he's referencing Isaiah probably because Isaiah was the prophet, most prominent at least in the mind of the evangelist here, as he relates this prophecy. But really, it's a threefold part prophecy that's given in these three different places in the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Your way, it's the Lord's way that he's preparing. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And we see this messenger in verses 4 through 6 described. John appeared. Now, who is this John? We know that it's John the Baptist. He has a feature in every single gospel that he is John the Baptist. In Luke's record, he is the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's the second cousin to Jesus. He's, he's a very important figure. Jesus said of him, those born among women, he is the greatest. And this is that John here described for us and he appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins great number of people here is being described all that doesn't mean every single person but it is meaning that John was a profound figure for his time his message was coming through to people. It was getting through to the hearer. People were coming from regions. This is upwards of a 40-mile uh, journey downhill from Jerusalem, but you'd ascend 4,000 feet uphill to Jerusalem from this place at the Jordan. This is no small thing. These people are going out of their way to hear this preacher in the wilderness, this prophet, and they're coming in droves to him. He's a monumental figure. He's an important figure. 
confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And what was important about this messenger is that he was be the one to prepare the way. He had a message. He had a message. And I want to consider the message before we look at anything that has to do with the person. His message, first of all, had to do with the proclamation of repentance. Verse 4, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for or with reference to the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to preach about baptism a bit next week. But for our sake today and this morning, the baptism of John that's accounted here, was probably not that uncommon in those days as a cleansing ritual or even more so as a ritual that marked the conversion of a Gentile to become part of the believing group or remnant of Israel in those days. It was not uncommon, especially amongst the wilderness groups, the ascetic people, the Essenes. They would practice baptism. Now there's all sorts of debate about John's baptism and what tradition that followed or if it was something new or something unique to John, but it had to do with his message regarding repentance. The message was not baptism will cleanse you. As later John says, I merely baptize with water. He's demeaning in a sense the value of water as a means of cleansing the soul. He's saying that's not what's essential is not the water, but the repentance here. The message was not baptism will cleanse you as a right from sin, but rather repentance and confession, verse 5, of sins are marked by the sign of cleansing and baptism. But this message, repent and be baptized, is sometimes criticized. Could we, as gospel preachers, could you go to your neighbor and say, repent and be baptized? Well, if you did that, you'd have to explain a lot to them. But John is preaching, if we will remember this, he's preaching to Israel. John is a preacher that is preaching to the Jewish people. And this is not an uncommon message. Jesus himself, in verse 15, preached this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And even when you go over to the New Testament or to the gospel uh, accounts as it was uh, unfolded, as Christ was ascended, and as the apostles are now understanding their sending and the, the Holy Spirit is being poured out again in fulfillment of the word of God, Peter preaches this message, repent and be baptized in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And I've heard it argued we could never preach such a message. And yet I would argue this is exactly where we need to be preaching such a message. You see, it's in the context of the covenant people of God that this message comes. Repent and be baptized. Repent and believe the gospel. Some people say, well, the, the, the preaching of repentance is not for the people of God. 
It's for the sinner. It's for the wicked. And it surely is for the sinner. It surely is for the wicked. And this is why it's important for us to understand something about ourselves. You and I are sinful. We're sinners. And insofar as we are justified by faith alone, we know that that is not a faith that remains alone. We know that repentance is an aspect and it's an ongoing part of the regular experience of the Christian life. And so preaching repentance is an important part of the preacher's call. I believe for myself that I am called to preach repentance, even to you this morning. What should the people repent of when John is preaching this message? Repent from what? Is it surprising to us that he would come to Israel and call them to repentance? Well, let me remind you that this is the same Israel that not very long from this point would cry out to God uh, about this Jesus, this Christ, the Son of God, crucify him, crucify him. And yet his purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the hearts of Israel to receive her, her king. But what does repentance mean? There's a lot of confusion uh, regarding what repentance means. It's been taught often that repentance is a very simplistic thing, oftentimes very simplistic like the way that people speak simplistically about the gospel. The gospel is good news. Yes, it's good news, but it is a full message, isn't it, of good news concerning God, concerning his son, concerning fulfillment, concerning the cost of our sin that was born upon Christ and that he paid for on Calvary, concerning his resurrection, bodily resurrection and his ascension. The gospel is profound news. It's not simplistic, and neither is the, the idea of repentance. The 19th century Greek scholar, Baptist scholar, John Broadus, who is one of the most profound scholars, I think, of the Christian history, the history of the Christian church, said of repentance, that English term repentance, that it was the worst translated English word in the New Testament. Because the word just means to think again. Think again. And the, I don't think, if I could say this, if I were to talk to John Broadus with little to no argument from my own scholarly uh, abilities in Greek compared to his, I would say part of the problem with repentance and that, that word being used, think again, is not so much in the way that the people of John's time would have heard the term, but the way that we would hear the term. You see, we think the term think again is some sort of an, an intellectual difference, merely. So that when somebody says repent and you think, oh, that only means to or think again, or metanoia is the Greek word, change your mind, right? We think, oh, that's just an intellectual thing. I just have to have a change of mind and now I've repented. But in this day, a change of mind was not intellectual merely. It was not so simplistic as the mind is something separated from the whole person. The mind is some cognitive resource that we have that knows stuff. 
And we categorize stuff we know by the mind, the brain, if you will. That's, very, a, a, that's really a pathetic way of thinking about the mind anyway, but just as the seed of intellect. So what repentance is not, though John Broadus is arguing, and he's right, is it's not merely an intellectual change. That's what it's not. It's not merely something that we, oh, when we're called to repent, it's just to change some sort of intellectual seed of the mind. This is where the false teaching of, oh, faith is merely an assent to stuff about Jesus. You know, all this stuff that I, I preached last week regarding the gospel. Faith in Jesus is not just to believe that he's the son of God, he's the Christ, he's those things that we preached last week. The devils believe and tremble. When, when the demons saw Jesus, they understood, don't, they had a fear, they trembled. They, their, their understanding of Jesus intellectually taught them that this is somebody not to be crossed. These are powerful entities, spiritual entities. But, but the teaching about repentance being just a merely intellectual change also is coupled with the teaching about faith that that's just an intellectual assent to some bits of knowledge about Jesus, Right? No, there's something more integral happening that the preacher is calling for. Something more of the essence of who you are that is being preached about. Sure, change of mind is part of what Scripture means by repentance. It's absolutely essential. But it's much deeper than just the intellect that, is, that it concerns. Judas had a change of mind, didn't he? Matthew chapter 27, he throws his money back at the people that, gave, that he exchanged the money for, the little bit of money that he exchanged for betraying Jesus. He throws the money at their feet, he repents in his mind, and then he goes and hangs himself. And then Paul says that there is a repentance unto death. There is a sorrow unto death, which very clearly paints a picture of Judas. He feels bad about what he did. I was talking uh, with Brother Mark recently. Repentance is, does not leave you in a place of shame, in sorrow. It's not merely that you see yourself as a sinner and that you repent or relent of your sin because you're a sinner. It doesn't leave you in that position of sorrow or grief or shame. Repentance much more aligns with the idea of conversion. Because there is a repentance, Paul says, that leads to life. It doesn't keep you in shame and wallowing in your own self-pity and grief. There is an aspect that it brings you out of that. And I just give that to you as, a, as an example to tell you that repentance is not a simplistic idea in the Scriptures. True, true repentance will produce good fruit. In fact, saving repentance will produce everlasting fruit. Acts eleven eighteen. Peter has preached to the Gentiles at this point, and they believed and they've received the Holy Spirit there. And here's something that's remarkable to those who are seeing this happen in this first early century, this first century church, and how the gospel is now being uh, proclaimed to the Gentiles, and they're believing, they're receiving the Spirit. And here's what they said when they 
uh, uh, consider what's going on. They say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted that he's gifted a repentance that leads to life. That's something bigger than just a change of concept of mind. This is something that is enduring and lasting. And the idea of life here is eternal life is what they're speaking about. Repentance is a complex matter in the scripture. According to Matthew's record of John's preaching, John the Baptist's preaching ministry, the Jewish leaders did not like his preaching about repentance. Now, some have said that John's preaching about repentance is just moralistic turning. So, so, he's, so they say, well, John is just out there preaching in the wilderness. Repent, change your way of life. And when we see they're confessing their sins, we might be tempted to think, yeah, that's all it means is that, that repentance means that when I'm calling a sinner to repent, it's like, oh, be moral, don't be immoral. And we hear a lot of preaching happen to, happening today, that sort of moralistic change. Don't be immoral, be moral. Repent, be moral, right? Listen to, to this, though. Listen to the hostility of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were about morality, weren't they? They were about what outward trappings of morality would be. And here's, their, here, here's what John has to say about them. But when he saw, this is Matthew 3, 7 through 9, that's John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for the most part, rejected John. You know, they come to Jesus and they try to trap Jesus, and Jesus says, was John baptisms of, of God or of man? And they wouldn't answer because the, they knew John was popular, and they didn't like John. And so John knows that. They probably have some quarrels. They probably have disagreements, open debates, and the Pharisees are not liking what's going on in the wilderness. And here's what John says to them. He sees them coming to his baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers. Oh boy, that wouldn't, you would be kicked off Twitter if you said something like that. Ah, uh, that's a shameful thing I, I just did there, right? That's not a very nice thing to say to somebody. It seems like the worst things that are said by John, Jesus, the apostles are said to false teachers. That's something to remember. It's important that you call false teaching what it is. It's the most reprehensible act of unbelief I think there is in the New Testament. Second Peter, I always point that out. Second Peter 2, Jude, talks about false teachers with no call to repentance for them. It's, it's, I'm not saying there is no possibility for repentance for false teachers, but it is one of the most damnable examples of sin that we see in Scripture. And John puts the nail right on the head, or the hammer right on the head of the nail. You brood of vipers. What is he saying there? You're essentially demons. Serpent had a very bad connotation in the Jewish mind. And here's a brood of you. That's not a very endearing thing to say, is it? You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he says this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, that is a change of lifestyle. But then he says this, 
And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't use that as an excuse as to why you should not repent. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, this objection of the Jewish leaders indicates uh, that John's call for repentance included more than a change of mind, but a change of direction, a complete turning in in some sense. But what he says in verses 8 and 9 helps us. In verse 8, or verse 8, he says that a changed life needs to be the pattern that results from repentance. In verse 9, he grounds repentance. I believe he implies that it's grounded on faith. Well, how do I come to that? The boast that the Jews are safe because they are physical children of Abraham is how Paul in the New Testament and Jesus treat unbelief. The idea that the Jew had that I'm safe because I relate physically to Abraham, Jesus says that is a perspective of unbelief. John chapter 8, verse 37 Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He's obviously preaching, and they're not believing what he's saying. He says this of them. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. That is, physically, he knows that they're offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me. Listen, why? Because my words find no place in you. You don't have faith. You don't believe. You don't believe me. That's why you seek to kill me. Verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, now he's speaking of Abraham spiritually speaking, because he said you're not Abraham's children. Now he's saying, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Well, is Jesus preaching salvation by works? No, he's saying this, if you believed me as Abraham did, if you believed in me, he says later, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He believed the promises of God. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And that coupled in him, that faith is what wrought change in him. And this is what James argues for. His faith was sincere and therefore Abraham obeyed God. And so implied, I believe, in the preaching of John's repentance is that the people had to believe the word of God. Now it's said, well, but John isn't preaching about Jesus here. And I'll beg to differ on that account. But remember what John, if John is coming, which I believe he is, in lineage of the prophets of the Old Testament, which we'll see here that he is, he's calling the people to believe what God has done for them. That was the prophets always believe and obey God. Believe and obey God. He's calling them back to the covenant God made with them. Remember the works that he did. Trust in his word and do the works that he's called you to do. That was the, that was the calling of the prophets. And John is one of them. And so it accords with all of those things. We know that Paul in Romans chapter 9 says that those who are children of the promise are not those who are merely sons of Abraham by the flesh, according to the flesh. The children of the promise are counted as offspring of Abraham. 
And we could go through Galatians 4.28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. He's speaking to Gentile believers there. And so what is it to be children of Abraham? It's to be believers, right? And so all of these things are present, I believe, and implied in John's message. And therefore, John's preaching of repentance implies this. Not merely a change of mind, an intellectual change, but a total transformation, a conversion, if you will, a change of heart, a change of mind. In fact, these things regard in the Hebrew mind very similar aspects of the person. The intellect is not devoid or, or separated from the heart, the seat of the emotions. Neither are they disconnected from the soul. When Jesus preaches what the greatest commandment is, he often interchanges these things. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, might. And, and sometimes he uses four, sometimes he uses two, sometimes he uses three. That's because he's speaking to the whole person. Repentance regards the whole person. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated repent there means to turn back. 1 Kings 8.47, I'll give you a few examples. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart. And then again, Isaiah 1, 27 and 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. And this is contracted, contrasted here. Verse 28. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. These examples are consistent with every occasion that we see a call to repent and to repentance in the Old Testament. They have to do with the conversion of the whole person to turn away from sin and to turn the whole person back to God. In summary, I think perhaps the best way we understand repentance when we see this in the New Testament, which it's not always used identically, but the way that John preaches about this and preaches this message and Jesus preaches it and the apostles preach it often is to turn, turn you. In fact, Wycliffe in his translation translated not the word metanoia, repentance, but with this small clause, turn ye, turn ye. Now, when we look at John, and we see that his message regarded a turning away from sin and self to God with the whole heart and mind, the whole person, this is also exemplified in his appearance. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now that to us may just sound like an obscure reference to some bad uh, fashion. Right? What does it matter that he wore camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings 1.8, you read this. He, that is speaking of Elijah, this prophet that really was a representative prophet of God, God in the Old Testament, Elijah. Very prominent, very important. And we'll talk about him more as we go through the book. 
Second Kings 1.8 says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so as, as a Jewish person is seeing John preaching in the wilderness with camel's hair, clothed in camel's hair, and a leather strap around his waist, a, a good Jewish person knows this is familiar. This, this is familiar. We've heard, we've seen this before in our history. Now, I, I have to comment a little bit about how, how fashion changes so abruptly nowadays. I was listening to my wife talk to her sister last night. Now there's all sorts of fashions coming back into style that when I was growing up in the 90s, you had a grunge, and now that's coming back for, you know, and, and fashion just goes like this, and it changes quickly, and, and before you know it, what you're wearing is out of fashion. This is a thousand years, and John is just holding the line. He's saying, I'm not going to conform with any modern sense of fashion, right? That's really not the point. And I, and I have no spiritual relationship. I'm not going to give you any application for that this morning with regards to dressing, okay? The point is that we see John as a prophet in lineage with the Old Testament here. But not just the Old Testament, a particular prophet, Elijah. That's no coincidence. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 Malachi the prophet prophesied this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, that day of the Lord is often described as a day of judgment, but that day of the Lord is also a day where the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, say in Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah and the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn, listen to what it says, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is what it says about the prophet. And this prophecy is spoken of in Luke chapter 1 by Zechariah or by the angel that that promises Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're going to have a son. And that son is John. And here's what the angel says. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people or a people prepared. So even this dress, this garment, this description of John and what he wore tells us something about his office. He's to to prepare the way of the Lord by turning the hearts of the children to the fathers. To those who are disobedient so that they would come under the instruction of the wise. What does that mean? The word of God. John is sent to the people to prepare them for Christ in order so that their hearts will be ready to receive their king, their Messiah. And for that to happen, they must repent. You see, John comes to a people not often unlike the Christian believer in many churches today. You're coming to church, maybe because your wife brought you here, maybe because it was Easter, maybe because it was what for whatever reason, maybe it's because you grew up in the church, you know, and now your family expects you to be there. But maybe it's because you find community there and you find acceptance there and you find a people that you can identify with. But, But if you're honest with yourself, it's not God. You're not coming there because 
God has captured your mind and your heart and your affections and your whole person belongs to him and you can't help but come enjoying yourself with the house of God, with his people and worship him and repent and confess your sins before him and be prepared and be challenged and convicted by the word of God and be taught by it so that when you go out in this world, you're prepared and you're equipped and you're ready to face a hostile people with love and not contempt. You see, John comes as a preacher with a message. Repent. Your hearts need to be ready to receive this gospel. And some people have said, well, John's message of repentance doesn't have, he doesn't preach the gospel. Well, I'd argue that in a few ways, but one of them is we see in the text, verse 7 and 8 here. This is the message of John part 2. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. He's preaching Christ here. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a message message that was particular to John's calling as a forerunner. And John's humility and posture, though, is essential for every true preacher of the gospel. John is saying he was unworthy to fulfill the task here of the lowest servant, to stoop down and untie his sandal was the the lowest task of the lowest servant. John's confession was that his baptism was just to prepare the hearts for the people, for the one that would follow him, who would bring eternal life through his baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. The fulfillment of the promises come through Jesus. John is still a proclaimer. He's still, in a sense, an Old Testament prophet calling the people back to what God had promised beforehand but now he's saying after me will come the one who's going to fulfill those promises he's preparing the hearts for the Messiah again Acts chapter 11 Peter who we believe was the one who recited these truths to Mark to write down in his gospel profoundly says this in Acts eleven sixteen, verse 18. This comes as a result of Peter's ministry. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when he heard these things, they fell silent. And they, when they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, God is still granting this gift to all who believe the gospel of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and repent. But that gospel is not preached as he will come. It's preached as he has come. And so here's the application to these things this morning. As I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm preaching to the Christians, I'm preaching to those who probably have been baptized, who come and receive from the Lord's table, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. 
the body and bread, symbolic of Christ's suffering. I'm preaching to you, and the message is this. Repent. Have you repented? Are you trusting in your lineage as a churchgoer? Are you trusting in your lineage as my father and mother were Christians? Therefore, I'm, I'm good. I'm a moral person. I follow what my religious teachers tell me to do. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I'm not greedy, you know. Uh, you could be like the rich young ruler here this morning. We're all pretty rich in this country. And you can say, I've done all of these things since my youth. Have you repented? And by that, I mean, have you seen in Jesus everything that you lack and that you need for eternal life? And you rejected your own self, your own righteousness, your own sin, and you've turned from it. You see, this message, I think it's profound that it doesn't come to the unbelievers, the Gentiles. John is not preaching to them. He's preaching to the choir, in a, in, a, in a sense. And I look out at you this morning, and some, some, something in me says, no, this isn't the message that you preach to them. But I've known many occasions where it was the churchgoer, myself included, who brought up in the church, who heard the gospel his whole life, who said the sinner's prayer 17 times, if not more, who was baptized, who had all the makings of a Christian. And at the preaching of the word of God, God granted the gift of repentance to me when I was 23. And so that's the call. It's not that this is an antiquated message that because Christ has come, it doesn't matter anymore. In verse 15, Jesus preaches that message. In chapter 2 of Acts, Peter preaches that message. Later in chapter 2 of Peter, chapter 3 of Peter, verse 9, he says, God is long-suffering towards us. Who are us? God's covenant peoples. That must be what he means. He's speaking to professed believers, not willing that any of us should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. And so I hold out to you this good news, but this necessary call this morning to repent. Don't trust in your flesh, in yourself in your sin or your good works. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come. That's good news. He is God with us. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he died bearing our sin. And he rose being conqueror of our sin and of death and of our enemy and of hell. Have you repented?